John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 702.ez0722, certificate number 26056, the last train robber. Mueve el tren! Vámonos! Vámonos! Muy pronto! No, no, no. Or should I say, the last train How are those two things different? Oh, you put the emphasis on last instead of train? The yeah. last train robbery. It's the last train robbery rather than the last train robbery. Yeah. It's no, not you're like. You're not wrong. I mean, I guess, I guess both things work, right? It's the last robbery of a train, but it's also the last. Train robbery. Train robbery. As a unit. What do you think about the Western? Have you ever been a Western guy? Yeah. I like the Western and I'm, and I've been, recently I've felt like I need to go back and dig into Westerns partly because I want what era, like old ones, old ones, medium ones. I don't think what, what I'm trying to do is find some classic cinema to show my 11 year old. And you think Westerns are what holds up? (laughs) Well, because she likes, she's so into racism. She's not into racism, but she is into horses. Well, she's not like crazy about horses. You could finish the sentence. I could just keep interrupting. No, keep interrupting. It's the Calorie style of the charges. Show. No. <laughs> Branding irons. No. She's uh, into bustles. Space operas. Right. Right? She right. loves she loves uh hand solo and she wants more choo choo choo. And I'm like, why don't we go to the source? And presumably, racism aside, these are pretty clean forms of film. Well, yeah, because they fell out of favor in like 1965 at the same time sex was invented and i don't want to show her the the modern re-envisioned uh westerns where they're super brutal or like everybody's really gnarly we should we should talk about the differences Yeah. yeah that's important here um so but i haven't actually gotten her engaged because i don't actually know the history of westerns i feel like probably what i should do is just show her gun smoke but uh, I don't, that, look, thinking about Gunsmoke, I don't think she's going she's gonna to vibe on Gunsmoke. Almost all American entertainment of the first half of the 20th century was a Western. I mean, not almost all, but it's estimated that between 1900 and 1960, about as many as 40% of all movies made were Westerns. 
Wow. I thought they would all be uh, like lighthearted romantic comedies set in New York apartments. Art Deco New York apartments? Yeah. I think the thing about, I mean, thinking about this, like part of it is just whatever the child's fascination with the the frontier was. Right. I did a whole Jeopardy category on the frontier the other day and I said frontier for America, but why? Why? here, here I can let my freak flag fly. Somebody just recently sent us an email saying, why... Do you keep putting an L in, in Soviet? I was like, welcome aboard. And I was like, wow, we've been doing this show for a long time. <laughs> uh, so there's, you know, the childhood fascination. And, you know, if this starts in 1900, the, the, very, the first movie, the first kind of narrative movie that kicks off movies as a thing, a business, even an art form. Was a Ku Klux Klan movie. <laughs> even before Birth of a Nation. 1903, the Edison Labs make Great Train Robbery. Um, which is about a kind, you know, two kind of Butch and Sundance style bandits holding up a train, and it's full of, um, you know, innovations that get the audience into the movie. You know, the action happens simultaneously. The camera moves. At one point, a bandit points his gun at the nah. at the audience. Did they all shriek and duck? Yeah, exactly. They're all they all peed their pants. Um, what were the bandits portrayed as the heroes of the film? Uh, no, uh, back then bandits were bandits, but you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, to a certain kind of kid with a a toy six shooter at home, boy, the bandits are the ones that are doing all the cool stuff, aren't they? It's true. Even if the marshals come at the end and this was not, you know, people are going to complain. This is not the first movie. I mean, this is the year after, uh, Georges Méliès made that trip to the moon thing you see sometimes where the moon takes a rocket right to the eye. Right. Poor guy. Um, featured in. 15% 15% of all music all videos music is, yeah. from 1980s. Smashing Pumpkins now own the rights to A Trip to the Moon. Um, people just loved the watercolor wash on uh, on weird uh, 1900s French people. Uh, so it's, you know, Great Train Robbery is the year after. But this is the one that actually makes movies a going concern because people just loved. It just seemed made for the screen, all the horses and bandits and hats and whatnot. So for the next, like, 50, 60 years... Uh, the American entertainment industry mostly made Westerns. And at the, at the time we weren't, I mean, there were still people who had pioneered and had been on the frontier who were alive. I mean, in 1903, there's kind still of a still a frontier, you know? Right. So when people are watching these movies, it's not just like, ah, days of yore. It's really like, boy, if only I were in, if only I could close my shop and move to that exciting part of the world or Maybe someday I'll grow up and I'll be a marshal. Pew, pew, you know? Right. Um, what, is there an equivalent today? Of, of movies that exotify the present? Well, in the 60s and 70s, it would be space movies. You know, like, this is what's this is what's happening out there, and, you know, in 10 years, we're all going to be in those orbiting Pan Am space stations. But that's slightly different, right? It's looking 10 years in the future, not, not 15 years in the past. Right. So now it would just be, like, 80s, or, you know, the forthcoming sub-pop biopic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about movies where they go to some part of the world that's still kind of a frontier. You know, oh, Bruce yeah. Wayne getting beat up in Tibet or, you know, when that happens in a movie, maybe that's the same vibe. Cause yeah. you're like, I could go there and have adventures, but really there's no part of the world where you can have adventures anymore. So now these movies are all set in some kind of indefinable past. And the rock is a, a contemporary guy who's also a 1920s steamboat captain. There was a weird period. I think starting in the seventies where we stopped the seventies, they exoticized the fifties Right? There was that whole Greece. Happy days, Greece, Shanana. But then something happened where we started to recognize that the past kind of sucked. And I guess in the 90s, we exoticized the, the late 60s. We were all 
remember the uh, Winona Ryder was always was always in some movie where somebody had a headband. Yeah, but then well, then it stopped, right? I mean, in the two mm, thousands, we weren't jeans like are back. I guess. Oh sure, but you're right. It's not when movies are now set twenty years in the past. It's not like remember when you were young and times were fun. It's more like, uh. Boy, this was a weird time, or or it's just for comic effect, right? It's more right. like, haha, they're still talking about uh, Nickelback, right? Look at them with mullets, lol. Yeah, uh, I guess maybe now we just have perma nostalgia for the same eras. That's what it is. The culture's decided. You know, we like we like the Beatlemania, late 60s. and we like uh, whatever. Yeah. Roaring Twenties, World War Two. We love World War Two. Oh, I can't. I mean, maybe when those guys finally die, maybe when the boomers finally die, people will stop making World War Two movies. I don't know. We'll see. Um, and I moved into t- you know it was it was every medium. You know, there were these dime novels and pulp magazines where kids and and citified young people could read about the the West. Uh-huh. Did you have cap guns? No Western guns in a in a. Uh, double holster i'm just too late you know to me it seems like my when i go to disneyland and you know disneyland's still stuck with Frontierland, where you know a quarter of the park is like a cavalry fort that thing that we all love yeah cavalry forts yeah um i still think it's you know fun because it reminds me of my parents childhood and you know baby boom kids and crew cuts and coonskin caps but it all seems like not my childhood at all that was all gone i think i'm just on the cusp enough that i definitely had Two ivory-handled uh, six-shooters in in uh, holsters that fired those red caps that came – red paper caps that came in rolls. Yeah. And I, it has to be – I got them when I was young enough that they were like holdovers from the 60s that were, that were on remainder at Sears uh, because shortly after that, all the toys went to – I mean, all the war toys went away from from uh, they all turned into Vietnam toys. Well, that may have been, may have been a decision, you know, like like what the kids shouldn't you know, the idea that it's bad psychologically. The spot Doctor Spock era idea that your kids shouldn't have these. GI Joe is going to be kind of a neutered paramilitary guy with tech instead of actual weapons. Mm, mm. We didn't have a lot of toy guns when I was a kid, honestly, because they ruined them by putting those little uh, those right. little, little pink Making plastic them orange, yeah. Gunsmoke was canceled. Do you have a guess here? What year? 72. 75. You could have Whoa. watched Gunsmoke as a kid. Well, I did, but I always thought it was reruns. There were over 100 TV westerns from the mid, between the early 50s and the, and the mid-60s. But, you know, talking about how those things went out of fashion, you know, as, as we started to think, you know, should kids be playing with guns? Also, the, the subtext of every western up until, well, many westerns, the mainstream western through the 60s was... You've got a masculine white male hero who is faced, who is the face of civilization, basically. He's faced with an uncivilizing force, whether it's cattle rustlers or uh, an Indian tribe that doesn't know its place, or with a new warlike chief, or... It was usually some big money guy who was trying to buy up all the farms because the railroad was coming through, and then the the one noble guy wouldn't sell, and his... And his big thugs were even that is kind of slightly second stage to have a to have a mean rich guy. Oh. You know, at first it's just straight up masked bandits and right. Indians. You know, that's kind of your quintessential 
1930s cheapo Republic Western. Right, sure. And a lot of the reasons he's got made is because they were cheap. You know, movie industry was in L.A. What could be simpler than, you know, you can't make castles and knights of yore, but if you want to have romantic adventures of the past, you know, you drive out to Bakersfield. 40 minutes, yeah, and then you've got, you know, you cheaply build some Western town and then you can shoot TV shows there for 30 years. Right. So it, it scaled. So a lot of these movies were cheaply and badly made. What do you mean badly made? I mean, they trained horses to to fall down and act dead that that's pretty that's pretty good tech. yes john i don't want to break your heart i'll tell you they, they were just training those horses to yeah act they dead. Did. They, i knew that they, I knew they that. didn't do anything cruel or bad to no, those horses they just they trained them now those movies had great stunts and many times great landscapes and some of them had good production values but for the most part they were made on a shoestring john wayne made like one of these a week in the 30s and that's how he became a star now you go to a western today and they still exist yeah. But they all have a take on the Western. They're all Westerns kind of about Westerns, or what we would have called from the maybe 70s on revisionist Westerns, anti-Westerns. 310 to Yuma. That was a good one. Which one, the original or the remake? Well, the remake was pretty good. Anything with Ed Harris in it, you kind of buy. Yeah, that's a remake of a 1950s movie. And even the 50s one, you know, that's an Elmore Leonard joint, I believe. And even those are kind of the early days of the psychological uh-huh. Western. It, it's a time that it's an era that starts surprisingly. You know, we think of these westerns as all just straight down the plate, cowboy shooting at Indians. Until say, I don't know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller or right. Sam Peckinpah or something, and then it all changes. And then you've got these, you know, Butch Cassidy is a buddy movie in a western, and you know, Pale Rider is a whatever psychological, you know, family drama in a western, or you know, Lonesome Dove and you know, Last Year Power of the Dog was one of the best movies but it's really about did you see power of the dog Mm-mm. benedict cumberbatch uh landry what's that guy's name friday night lights guy landry uh oh wait was that the the one yeah, Bron- Bron- yeah. bronco henry wouldn't have missed that movie. no he i did see it. it i did see it and it was so psychological that it felt almost like a uh it it felt like a science fiction movie in the sense that right. you were never really sure what was happening and you weren't, you were never let off the hook. Some of that is because it's supposed to be Montana, but they shot it in New Zealand. So it really does have this otherworldly flavor. Yeah. And then, of course, it's got the queer subtext of, you know, the main character is just a unhappy alcoholic because the frontier has made him repress his, his love for his male mentor. Um, but, you know, so you go to any of these movies now and it's inevitably some comment on our memories of a dying genre. Right. I just went to this movie last week called God's Country, which is um, Tandiwe Newton as a, a black woman academic at some unnamed Western state school who kind of runs into the local MAGA hunter weirdos. Set in what era? It's mo- oh, it's modern. Yeah. Oh, huh? Yeah, she's a modern professor, um, but it becomes a Western because, you know, she's being stalked by bandits. And now instead of the and the cops are kind of helpless. So right. the white marshal is like just a black woman academic who is putting up with things in this town that, you know, even Gary Cooper would never have had to does she deal have, with. Does she get a gun in the end? Is it a gun movie? It turns into a violent oh, movie wow. with, uh, with fire and death. Um, but w- what's interesting about these kind of revisionist Westerns that have psychological elements and comment on the tropes is uh, the beginning of them is often said to be 1935. One of these cheapo John Wayne Republic Westerns is called Westward Ho. I've never seen it, but he... Uh, I feel like I have. It's like a... It's it's one of these... It's kind of a proto-searchers thing where he... His brother gets captured by bandits 
And he decides to, he puts on a black hat and organizes a vigilante team to go, you know, kill all the bandits and take his brother back. And then there, I think there's an element where his brother is now kind of one of them and he has to face what that means. Does he, does he fight a Balrog and come back with a white hat? <laughs> yeah, that's how it happens. <laughs> Nobody in the Westerns ever switches to a white hat, right? Like, do the bandits ever... I mean, maybe on their deathbeds. I feel like in the course of this episode, we're going to write a treatment for a Western just by, uh, just through our sides. And it's going to be a revisionist Western. Of course. Yeah. Where the, the black hat takes off the black hat, puts on a white hat. And wait, but that within the tech community, the whole black hat, white hat thing has now, that's no longer, that's no longer kosher. Saying kosher is no longer kosher. Or black black hats were what bad kind of hackers, and white hats were the good kind of hackers. Yeah, black okay. hat hackers were the ones that were trying to actually hack, infiltrate, and then the white hat ones were using their hacker powers to defeat black hat hackers. I do like that cowboys had a hanky code, basically. Right, Bronco Henry wouldn't have worn a black hat. Did they then? Did a ten gallon hat represent something? Was it five gallons flat? <laughs> Uh, I think as we'll see later, as we get to the final, our titular train robbers, I think we'll see that most of these tropes just came straight from dime novels. Right. I mean, the famous thing that John Ford, you know, we think of John Ford as kind of a traditionalist, but when you look at lists of psychological Westerns, really all the ones you remember as being old-timey traditional Westerns are actually the ones with a layer of something else going on on top. Shane and High Noon both end with a gunfight. Oh, but High Noon is... You're right. Something completely else. Right. That's like the town that won't support the marshal. Right. And Shane is, you know, the lone gunfighter protecting the homestead. But actually, it's a lot more complicated. The, the ranchers, it's more about the dying frontier. The ranchers and the homesteaders are now competing for the same limited land. Um, Which is a metaphor for the frontier and the and the Native Americans. Right. The early Westerns are hopeful. You know, it's a limitless frontier as long as we just k- kill all the, the indigenous people. Right. Um, whereas very quickly as the, the the frontier becomes exhausted, then we start to have stories about, no, there, these conflicts are, you know, the, the movie is powered by the conflicts caused by the limited resources. Yeah. It's the railroad. No, it's the gold miners. No. Right. And I guess if you think about it from the, from the revisionist, from the Native point of view, even the early movies are about limited resources. It's just the movie doesn't care about the the non-white people getting killed right. in, in protection of those resources. The limited resources being an endless right. open land. And you watch some of these 50s movies. Uh, I was watching a movie the other day where you know the, the, the Indian villain, the Native American villain, is actually played by a white actor in, in Red Face, and it's like... Uh, Dean Martin. It's Rock Hudson, I think. Oh. It's, uh, is that right? Those Anthony Mann westerns with Jimmy Stewart are great, but unfortunately, Rock Hudson is sometimes in red face. Is that? I is think, it always Rock Hudson? It's at least, is something it, about him. Winchester seventy three. That's the one. No, but you know, you know, these movies are just not. You know, until Dances with Wolves in the early nineties, you know, America had never been asked to consider what if westerns, but from the displaced people's point of view, and. That's how recently we were, I guess, 89, whenever that movie came out. That's no, it was in the 90s. Is that right? Do you remember seeing Dances with Wolves? Do you remember it, I do. it being a, a paradigm shift? Yeah, and I'm still a defender of it. You know, I feel like people are like, oh, Goodfellas should have won the Oscar. So you have a certain kind of very shallow film critic who thinks Dances with Wolves is a bad movie. But no, like, I remember the hundreds of column inches about, like, finally a place for, you know, good parts for Native actors and 
let's consider the frontier from the point of view of these people. And I had just moved to Seattle and I was sitting in a pizza parlor reading the Seattle Weekly. There was an article about this new movie that was just coming out, you know, about about the the frontier, except from the Indian point of view. So, and, so brave after a hundred years of Westerns. To and have I was like, one. wow. And I looked across the street and it was uh, the movie theater on University Avenue. Um, the Varsity? No, not oh, the Varsity. Oh, not, not on University Way. On, oh, what? you were on the Ave. I was on the Ave. So it was, what's that one? Uh, Metro. The Metro. No, is that right? No, the Metro was over on uh, on 45th. It was the it was the one that always showed the. Are you sure it's not the Varsity German movies? Well, what? Oh, it, it was the Varsity. I'm sorry. You're not up by the Seven Gables or Grand Illusion. No, no, no. This has been closed Seattle oh, movie theaters. Old movie theaters in the <laughs> University District for fifty dollars. Ken, um, yeah, and it was and it was on the marquee, and I I paid my pizza bill and I walked across the street and they were like, movie starts in five minutes. And it's I, like the 30s where you just wander in during the newsreel. It was great. And I went in and oh, it was uh it had a real impact. I'll I'll ride for uh for dances. Thank Wolves. you. Thank you. I mean, maybe Costner's legacy has been tarnished now a little, but he's still making revisionist westerns decades later. I mean, if you think about James Woods's uh <laughs> right. legacy, so <laughs> Ken, if we here at Omnibus were going to hire uh, some employees, which we probably should do. Let's hire like 30 people today. If we hired 30 people, how would we begin to manage all those employees? Neither you nor I want to be in the HR business. Just onboarding them, you know, doing all the training and stuff they need, doing continuing feedback so you can continue to monitor their performance. I have no idea what the current compliance issues are. How often do employees get breaks? Ow, what happens if they don't come to work for weeks at a time? All the regulatory stuff. What are we going to do? Are we going to hire 30 people and an HR department? Well, let me tell you what. HR issues can kill a small business, and HR expenses could drive us right into the ground. $80,000 a year, right, to pay an HR manager? Well, that's the average, but here in Seattle, a lot more than that. So what do we do, John? Solve my problem that you just invented. Well, (laughs) here's what we do. We hire... Bambi, which is to say that for $99 a month, we employ Bambi.com to uh, act as virtual HR managers for our company. Virtual. They're available by phone, email, and chat, so they can run all the ongoing HR stuff that our 30 new employees will require for onboardings, terminations, because we're going to fire a lot of them. 30 is just too many people. Uh-huh. Uh, all their HR managers are based in the United States. They're all experienced HR managers that understand uh, business nuances across all 50 states. They can customize their policies to fit your business or our business in this case. They have an autopilot product that automates a lot of what an HR department would do. So, you know, policies, training, feedback, all that stuff just gets taken care of by itself. I, I think we should do it. I think we should hire these 30 people. I think so, too, and I think we will join their thousands of active clients and thousands, and we'll end up giving thousands of five-star reviews. You and I, together. If you are looking to hire 30 people, like John and I are, schedule a free conversation with Bambi today, and just you'll be amazed at how much they can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com slash Omnibus right now. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash omnibus. Bambi.com slash omnibus.
So train robbery uh, as part of, so, so, you know, this is partially a story about what the myth of the West did to people in the early 20th century. And, you know, we kind of think of it in a rosy, you know, apart from the racism of the, of how native people were treated, we kind of think of it as a rosy way of, you know, adventure loving kids firing cap guns at the kids at the other end of the alley. The thing about the, the mythologizing of the West is that it's not entirely the myth of the West because there's a lot of the West that was really... The landscape was real. The re- landscape the, was the, real. The, and the, the cow punchers probably did have a pretty good adventurous life that they couldn't have had in the city. Yeah, they had to run those cattle up, up and down and there were... It's not like the Middle Ages where you're just ignoring all the smallpox and the... And the a squalor. I think a lot of a lot of the plots are driven by the fact that we had decided what civilization was and we had figured out how to install it mm-hmm. where it felt like it was edificial, right? It wasn't Boston was not going to revolt. There was no question about whether or not the the police had authority in New York City by 1875. And so here we were in these movies trying to trying to wrestle with what what it was like when the law was not yet not yet firmly established and from a know, writer's point of view that's a more interesting venue for yeah, a story. Yeah. It's so it, there's the, more agency for any hero. These tiny little moral questions of like, you know, cuz there's always a brothel in the film mm-hmm. or even even in the the goody two shoes ones, right? There's always a madam. It's a saloon with um with sexy dancers yeah. in the old ones. It's not clear what they're what they're getting up to upstairs. So yeah, it's like it's all the all the kind of moral conundra that it would be it would be very weird to make a movie about New York City that had a madam in it. <laughs> oh, I see. You can get away with a kind of of uh, lawlessness, but it still seems kind of wholesome. Well, yeah, because the law is always coming. Yeah. Right, the law is always is always right behind where the film is. Yeah, if you made a movie in New York that ends with two people having a shootout on a street in the middle of the day, that's a very different vibe. It's it's romantic when that happens in Tombstone or Deadwood. Right. When it happens in Queens, it's a it's a bummer and you know broken glass and won't someone think of the children? It's just interesting that like we turned on the Western so early that by 1935 movies are starting to be like, well, this could be a setting to tell any story. And, and even the John Ford movies you think of as kind of right down the plate are, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance has the famous line when the, what is it? When the truth becomes legend, print the legend, you right. know, like, like the movies are self-aware that, that it's more about the story at this point than about the history. Because that is a that is a tropey character. The 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 East Coast reporter who's there kind yeah. of callowly chasing the story. Yeah. Unforgiven does the take of it where it's the guy who writes the dime novels and is, you know, he just is out there to get a seed of truth, but he knows that he's gonna add a hundred delightful details that are nowhere to be found. That's kind of the Altman, McCabe and Mrs. Miller West where maybe it is as squal- uh, squalid as the Middle Ages and in some of these mining camps or railroad camps. And we could tell those stories too, which have more syphilis, I guess. Yeah. Syphilis is going to come up a lot in the show in the coming days. Oh, in, in Thursday's show? Uh, there's also, uh, syphilis is also a main character. Well, we'll consider this to be just a little preview of coming attractions, yes. if you will. So train robbery is a fairly modern invention, uh, European invention. Did you ever see the the Sean Connery 
who else is in that? Is Michael Caine in that? The Great Train Robbery about these? Oh yeah, the early eighteen twenties era. You know, the it's I think it's a Michael Crichton novel, but it's based on a, a fairly, it's fa- based fairly closely on the real criminals. Yeah. Um. You know, people had long had the idea. You know, somebody's got a ship. Ingots around. Um. I don't know if the Phoenicians were robbing boats full of ingots. They were bad ingots or good ingots. I mean, that was the thing. You had to take your either you took the money out if you were going to colonize India. You took. You took guilders with you in order to return with mm-hmm. the Spice, spice. The spices. But was anybody stealing? Was somebody in a smaller boat pulling up alongside? Yes, there was all kinds of, well, piracy. Well, that's true. Right? Am I right? That's true. So this is, so I guess, yeah, these modern, these train robberies are just the descendant of piracy because now the cash is being carried in big bags on a, on a freight car. Right. Instead of in a, a clipper ship or a galley or something. Um, but train robbery in peacetime America actually begins in the 1860s. Uh, it was in basically invented by the Reno gang, the Reno brothers of, uh, of Southern Indiana. Now, 1860s are a troubling time because there's really pre-1865 and post-1865. So when is the Reno gang? Post, uh, you know, train robbery in America started as, you know, armed guerrillas during the civil war holding up trains from the other side just to get supplies and, and gold. Yeah. And then trains, yeah, in many cases, to, you know, to get a, to get a train. Um, Who doesn't want a train? So the earliest American train robberies are all Civil War guerrillas. Uh, but in peacetime, and I think there's one shortly after Appomattox, you know, some Northerners, outlaws taken out a Southern train, but I think it's really just post-Civil War hangover. But the Reno gang of Southern Indiana uh, gave us, gave the West... The train robbery. There were five brothers. Southern Indiana being that was the that was what we would call the a border state at the time. <laughs> not and the, now, not the frontier, <laughs> I guess, but you know, close to it, L- more lawless than Ohio or Pennsylvania. Tip a canoe right there. Yep, and uh, the Reno family had come up from Kentucky, I believe, to homestead in Southern Indiana. Very strict religious man, whose five sons did not love sitting in the parlor for six hours every Sunday reading the Bible. They turned into bad kids pretty quick. They rebelled, and they started to what, run confidence card games on travelers passing through. You know, at first harmless stuff, but it quickly and then stealing horses. Has but, anybody made a connection between reading the Bible and growing up to steal horses? Because I think that might conne- be a little bit of unexplored scholarship. I think the connection usually goes the other way. The Bible is full of such dire consequences for horse thieves oh. that it scares these kids straight but not the reprobate reno boys gotcha um and i think it quickly escalated from there to ha- maybe house burglaries and I, there were part of the town burned down at that time and the sus- local suspicion was the reno boys had done it in order to then force off some people and buy up some land cheap and you know rebuild a more economically viable version of seymour indiana i believe is where they grew up uh, when the Civil War broke out, um, at least one of them went to fight legitimately, and one was killed. But many of the others tried a new practice called bounty jumping, okay, which I had never heard of. So I was aware of the first stage of this, which is at the time of the American Civil War, uh, wealthy kids could buy their way out of the draft by finding somebody else to send in their place who needed the money. Right. I think that's a plot point of the what the New York draft riots and gangs in New York and so on. It's a plot point of the current Russian involvement in the <laughs> war in Ukraine. That's correct. This is happening today. 
Uh, except they are just trying to find what, like uh, Central Asian nomads to to take their place at the front lines. Yeah. The uh, the bounty jumping was you take you accept such a assignment. You join the military in the stead of some pampered rich kid. Uh-huh. And then as soon as you get there, you, you take the money, arrive at the front lines and quickly desert, head home, take on a new name. And under your new sobriquet, you do it again. Oh, So these guys spent the whole civil war going to war and coming home under a series of names and collecting fat checks for it. Uh, after the war, they form, they come back to Seymour, Indiana, and they start to recruit other local ne'er-do-wells to continue their criminal endeavors, which are now escalating to various kinds of theft, post office, robbery, and so on. All of the Reno boys are bad, except yeah. for the, except for the one, even the one who died in the war is probably bad, except for Honest Clint. Honest Clint Reno? Clint Reno refuses to join the gang. And in fact, he uh, that's the role played by Elvis in his first movie, Love Me Tender, which is a wildly fictionalized version of the Reno gang and the one good boy who won't participate. Huh. The only time Elvis ever played a historical figure, except in all his concert films where he plays the historical figure, Elvis Presley. Elvis. Is that right? All those Elvis cowboy movies, he it's all made up? There's none of it? Because I was taking it at, at face value. It was all real. No, he's always just some generic, uh, no. good-looking outlaw kid. But in this case, in this case, it was actually going to be, this is his first movie. It was going to be called The Reno Brothers or something. And then Elvis's tune became such a hit that they just renamed the movie Love Me Tender. Uh, so, but the remaining boys, the remaining Renos and their other bandits, uh, are a bad scene. On October 6th, 1966, they board... 1866. Did I say 1966? It would be crazy if it happened in 1966. On October 6th, 1866, the Reno brothers are aboard an Ohio and Mississippi train headed east. Um, East? Okay. Maybe maybe it didn't go too far from... The point is they didn't care how far they were going because they weren't going to be on it long. Um, They, not too... Far out of this platform, they put on masks um, and head to the uh, car belonging to the Adams Express Company, which is where all the you know train, trains in the West carried a ton of freight. Right. So that's where all the that's where all the mail and the freight was. They demand a key at gunpoint from the Adams Express Company man and are able to open the depot safe, which mm-hmm. is where the smaller safe where mail and stuff that's getting loaded on and off at various stations on this route uh, are. And there's $10,000 in gold coins, which uh, delights the Reno brothers. They are unable to open the through safe, which is um, stuff that's going all the way from the beginning of the line to the end of the line. It's a larger safe doing the the longer haul travel. Was it guarded by a man who worked for E.H. Harriman? And- <laughs> E.H. Harriman. Uh, wait, what movie is that? That's, that's Butch and Sundance? Butch and Sundance. Yeah, that's what I... I work for E.H. Harriman. Is it... Who is the guy? Is it John Fiedler? Is it, um... Is it the voice of, uh, Piglet? Is it that guy? I can't remember who the actor is. It's one of those guys who played the... You know what? I mean, E.H. Harriman is a real... Is a real character in the world. Yes. actual living character at the time. But I can't remember who the who the guy the, the accountant looking guy who won't give up the key. Anyway, the the Reno boys cannot open the through safe. 
And so what they end up doing is pushing it off the train uh-huh. uh, and then jumping it off and meeting up with a couple other members of their gang, including two other Reno brothers who have the getaway horses there. Um, but they are unable to get into the safe in time. It's too heavy to take with them. They end up leaving it. Um, That's why you bring dynamite. An Ohio and Mississippi. Exactly. Uh, an Ohio and Mississippi route agent, uh, on, I think, is on the train and is able to recover the safe. Uh, unbeknownst to the Reno boys, the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad have outsourced their security to the Pinkertons. Yeah, so here by the, we go. by the time they get back in a train, a telegraph has already summoned. Who are the real bad guys in this story? Exactly. The Pinkertons are done coshing the skulls of, uh, of, of rebellious miners, rebellious labor unionists and whatnot. Uh, unfortunately, a man, unfortunately for the Reno brothers, a man on the train named George Kinney has seen them before they masked up. And he's like, those are the Reno boys. I know exactly who this is. Oh, and he tells the Pinkertons who arrest the Reno brothers. Um, they're quickly out on bail, however. And George Kinney, the witness is gunned down at his front door hmm. of a, of an autumn night. Mm-hmm. And the Pinkertons and the Ohio and Mississippi Road realize the case will never go to trial and as a result the reno boys get away with it and continue to continue to perpetrate train robberies all over the west and this is the beginning of the train robbery era copycat criminals see what can be done they see this as a you know the weakest possible point in a in a overextended financial system if you want ten thousand dollars in gold or bonds or whatever that's the way to do it and so we get frank and jesse james and we get butch and sundance and all these outlaws that kind of create this romantic ideal of of train robberies which brings us to and i'm sure this will surprise you the great depression the great depression we're gonna jump ahead no one expects the great depression (laughs) no one did that's why they were jumping out of windows right if they'd seen it coming they could have uh they could have gotten out of the market well my grandfather certainly didn't see it coming he didn't go out a window did he no but he stopped into a bottle. He stopped drinking. I was, well, I was going to say he stopped drinking out of ladies' shoes, but it turned out no. This was just the beginning of him drinking out of ladies' shoes. Yeah, yeah. those were not the days. The jazz age continued for him, but it was cheaper bathtub gin. Not so jazzy. Let me tell you about a belief I have, John. Mm, is I, this about Mormonism? Mm, oh wait, I mean Church of Latter Day Saintsism. It's kind of related. Okay. My belief is that Shopify is just a store. <laughs> is this related? My belief is the children are our future, but go on. Shopify is I just a store? I believe that Shopify is just a store. No, I don't agree. What do you think then? I don't agree with any of your beliefs. What, what do you think about my belief in Shopify? I think Shopify is more than a store. Oh, in what way? I think it helps you connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. You know what? That's kind of convincing. Now that I think about how Shopify gives little entrepreneurs the resources that once only big businesses had... That really, that's a valuable thing for startups. Maybe that is more than a store. It's for upstarts, it's for startups, and established businesses alike. It allows them to sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. And scale their business and reach customers through social media networks because they integrate so easily with Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Pinterest and so on. 
That that is a little bit more than a store now that I think about it. It's pretty nice. Am I changing your belief system a little bit? A little bit. Now that I think about how I could synchronize my online and in-person sales, could a regular store do that? No. Not so much. uh, Shopify allows you to gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. Now, a store wouldn't grow with me. It would just be a store. Does Shopify grow with me? Shopify does grow with you. It's more than a store. This is a possibility, and it's powered by Shopify. Shopify powers over 2 million businesses from first sale to full scale. If I'm going to be 2 million and one, I think. If you want to be 2 million and two, what should they do, John? They should go to shopify.com slash omnibus. That's all lowercase omnibus for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash omnibus in lowercase right now that's shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus we're gonna meet henry loftus of uh manitowoc wisconsin i hope i'm saying that right but i didn't look it up Mm -hmm. and a canadian named harry donaldson henry loftus uh has left wisconsin with his family to head east his dad has opened a shoe store back east and by the time of the depression he's working in a factory in Brooklyn and he hates it because it's a bleak time in American history. And I guess this is a a thought, a factor I had not considered when you think about the Western boom of the early 20th century, which is from the point of view of the great depression, those times looked free and romantic. Oh, of course. You're not dealing with bread lines and unemployment. You know, you could always just head to California and, and find a job, you know, uh, yeah, we, we, this is the hangover of industrialization, right? Right, and 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 that seemed to be the future, and now that has produced this this awful situation. So let's roll back the laws. Let's roll back the machines. Yeah, the West is not just a symbol of mesas and harmonicas. It's it's actually opportunity. Yeah. You know, that's where a man could be a man and earn a living and take a claim. All the all the stew and cornbread you could eat, you know, uh, as opposed to these poor guys working in these awful Brooklyn factories. Huh. And there's a huge industry that exists to cater to people like Henry Loftus. You know, he's always buying the new pulp magazines every week. He's, uh, he's reading the dime novels. And he's convinced that even today, maybe there's money in, in them Nar hills. You know, anything's got to be better than, than Depression-era Brooklyn. Um, now, contemporary people would think that this was all some planned conspiracy to neuter the the working man, keep keep put them salt from Peter in their in yeah. their boarding house food and put and put Western tales in their dime novels. Yeah, in order to keep them from revolting behavior, but in order to, to keep rising the, up against the capital. Class. Yeah, but I but but I've never considered the Marxist take on dime. Are you saying that Western dime novels are not? Where is it? Not, not compatible, compatible with, with Marxism. Marxism. The thing is, on this show, we always want to at least suggest the Marxist take. We we don't have to get behind it. We don't want to ride for it. The but, other thing these kids could be reading would be superhero comics, which I believe, even though they're all written by good Jewish liberal kids, were also not compatible no, with Marxism because there are all these there are all these fascist wish fulfillments about. I mean, the ones where you're punching Hitler are arguably at least Antifa. Yeah, but even but in a lot of these, Bugs Bunny punched Hitler. Yeah, a lot of these you're just. Uh, I mean, okay, Superman, I'm going to get letters. Superman does start out as a good 
a good uh, progressive. He's always fighting the clan and the big businessmen and sticking up for the labor unions and the little guy. But I'm just going to say the impulse on a lot of these four color entertainments was. Well, you are. It was pretty violent. Sorry, my friend. Uh, you I, can't go against superheroes in I, this I, climate. I, I pissed off the Golden Age superhero fans. Just, a, just almost as much as uh, as when we... Well, it's almost like, when you think about these superhero movies, it's almost like they're the revisionist Westerns who have to explain, yes, Tony Stark is an evil war profiteer. Yes, we were... Captain America is genetically modified. Yes, Thor is a Norse god with all that that implies. Um so a lot, a lot of window dressing has to go into, or, you know, lampshading has to go into making those movies further from their problematic origins. Of the two of us, I am going to stand on the side of the Marvel Comics universe, so please don't send any <laughs> letters addressed to me. <laughs> Henry Loftus was not, uh, you know, he's got a good steady job now, but he was not always a good kid. He was a bored teenager back in Wisconsin, and there were a couple of burglary charges that sim- uh-huh. sympathetic local cops and magistrates had to make go away. Because, uh, you know, he, he was a, he was a a bit of a a delinquent. Has he come back to Wisconsin from Brooklyn or is he in Brooklyn? He's still in Brooklyn. This is just a flashback to, I'm I'm just kind of giving you, I'm painting a picture of his, uh, of his, uh, you know, the gray shades of gray and his morality. Now that we're becoming a true crime podcast. (laughs) Well, you know, I was thinking about this true crime podcast kind of are the modern equivalent of this. Let's read about bandits shooting up shooting up banks and trains. Yeah. Right. Um, and the people, and the people in the thirties thought they were getting the, the scoop. They thought they were getting true crime when they read a lot of these detective and cowboy pulps. Again, this is foreshadowing Thursday's show. Oh, why is Why is my show just a, a preview to your, why is mine just the cartoon newsreel before we get into the main course? <laughs> it's not just a <laughs> Loftus manages to save up $200 from his factory job. And he, Quits. I'm holding up compatible with Marxism. Um, $200 in 1930s money is worth $2 million now? <laughs> You're usually pretty good at that calculation. It's about two. You can add, for the 30s, you can add about a zero. I mean, the the thing about it is the last 20, 30 years, this was so stable that I could just kind of met, remember some benchmarks. Right. And now it's all it's all thrown off. You know, the pound is worth a dollar inflation. <laughs> I, what are I we know. doing here? <laughs> we should all be in London yeah. right now. You right? and I should, should decamp to London and just do this show from there. I mean, I don't want to say that I was cheering for Brexit, but, um, but now, but you know, restaurant meals are going to be a lot cheaper in yeah. London next time I'm there. Your favorite vacation spot. Uh, Henry quits and boards a train for El Paso, Texas with his work buddy, Harry Donaldson, a Canadian-born friend, both of them are just fans of the West as they have perceived it through the popular entertainments. Oh, wow. They go go to John Wayne movies, they read about Billy the Kid in their magazines, and they're like comic nerds, but instead of superheroes, cowboys and bandits. So there's enough of an overlap that the West is already being romanticized, and there's still a West. Or well, the fringe of a West. They think so. Ah. They get arrived in El Paso a few days later, and they are... Super bummed that there are cars super, in the streets. There's cars in the streets. The streets are paved. There's phone lines and power lines. They go to a bar, and it has neon. Oh, my God. It's not the, it's not the saloon with the swinging doors that no they had No one's wearing envisioned. a hat. They are super bummed. Um, but they've got their $200 nest egg, so they spend most of it, $140. They spend almost all that's left buying horses and saddles and some pistols with some fancy leather holsters 
Um, the ultimate dudes. The, the next, yeah, exactly. The next couple of days, they cross over to Juarez, where they buy. You know, this is where I guess you know it's the equivalent of going to uh, Vietnam and buying a tailored suit. They cross the border to Juarez and buy cowboy gear. Yeah, they buy chaps and some black sombreros and some really kind of fancy high heeled Mexican boots. Yeah, they are as you say, dudes. They come back to town and they are laughed at in El, the streets of El Paso as drugstore cowboys. Yeah. This was the term at the time for a certain kind of delinquent. Um, one that hung out at a soda fountain. You know, it's 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 pretty much the 50s ideal of the, the kid with the lazy rebel without a cause with no job just hanging out at the malt shop. Yeah. Except in this case, a drugstore cowboy was specifically one who wore the old-timey gear to, to try to charm the senoritas. Three amigos. There, I, I was interested enough in this to read the origins of these phrases there are a ton of kind of 1920s and 30s era slang for juvenile delinquents we think of that as a 50s phenomenon but in fact people in the 20s would have been rolling their eyes at the drugstore cowboys the jelly beans these mm. would have been the fops mm-hmm. the, the young dandies who are who are trying to pick up the girls with their kind of elaborate styles but also the uh the cake eaters which i guess is the 1920s way basically to say boy Really? Yeah. The cake eaters. Yeah, the ca- a cake eater was a was was a real uh, loose character. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too, if you know what I mean. Um, but these two are drugstore cowboys, and the town has a good laugh at these two Eastern dudes who are now dressed up like Zorro. But on the evening of November twenty fourth, nineteen thirty seven. Nineteen thirty seven. Isn't this amazing? The Apache Limited pulls out of El Paso, headed west to L.A. My dad was 16. <laughs> uh, it's 1120 at night. I guess there's a red-eye train to L.A., apparently. Um, Loftus and Donaldson have bought tickets for Hermanos, New Mexico, I think a, a nearby stop. And about 40 miles out from El Paso, they get up in their passenger car and they pull out their newly bought pistols from their newly purchased holsters and say, you know, they hold the conductor up, and, you know, one of them, uh, I think Loftus covers the conductor while Donaldson walks up and down the car saying, yes, that's right, it's a train robbery, uh, you know, wearing their outlandish gear. Uh, who's got cash? Who's got watches? Let me see your jewelry, ladies. Um, they managed to steal some watches and some rings, but there's not a lot of cash. Uh, Loftus goes up to the engine room to tell the brakeman to stop the train, in this case, the engine. Sorry, yes. The engine room is something you'd that, find that would be a on ship. a ship. Yeah. Does a locomotive not have an engine room? The whole thing is an engine. Well, yeah, but you don't stand in the engine. Well, yeah, it's also an engine. That's true. Yeah. No, you stand in the cab. That's true. That's right. Uh, and uh, Loftus orders the brakeman to stop. They're going to make a getaway that way, although they're just kind of in the middle of nowhere at this point. Um, but meanwhile, back in the passenger car. Uh, an El Paso man named Jose Rodriguez apparently does something suspicious enough or makes a move. And you got to imagine these two guys are pretty jumpy, right? Right. I mean, even if they have been reading about the West for years, it's got to be different to suddenly be, I mean, they probably didn't have any experience with guns. This is probably their first time holding a weapon, certainly on somebody. Have you ever held up a train? I'm going to say no. I have. When did you hold up a train? So, I don't know if you remember. You, did you ever go to Marriott's Great America? No. Marriott's Great America was a uh, was an amusement park. Um, and uh, wait a minute. No, I'm thinking of. 
What was the one next to Disneyland? Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm had a ride that was a, an old train with locomotive mm-hmm. with a bunch of cars, and you would ride around Knott's Berry Farm. And uh, halfway through the ride, some bandits would come on the car, <laughs> and they would rob the train. And it was like a big, exciting moment on the on the ride. And there'd be a, there, there was some kind of shootout with blanks, and it was it was really like a thrill. And at this time, every zoo and amusement park in the country had a little train, like a like a half scale or a, or a quarter scale train that would take you around the park. Yeah, Woodland Park Zoo did. Woodland Park had one, and uh, uh, the State Fair here in Puyallup still has one. And I was so inspired by Disneyland's fault, by the way. They oh, that sure. was Walt's inspiration to have a train. A train should go around it. Train goes around. That's it. like his first first uh, one sentence summary of the park. I was so excited by getting held up on the Knott's Berry Farms train that when I came back to Seattle, I got my six shooters. This is what nineteen seventy five or six. Got my six shooters. Went to Woodland Park. With my family, they were all on the rides. I had a bandana, pulled it up over my face, hidden the bushes. The little train went by. I ran behind it, jumped up on it, and said, "Reach for the sky!" And everybody totally uh, like humored me. I walked down the aisle like, and it was pretty bold. How old were you? Eight, nine, <laughs> and I loved. Doing this, I did it every time I went to the zoo until they started to say, until they made a uh, like a rule nobody could get nobody on the train. Nobody can hold up the train. Nobody can hold up the train. And then they cha- <laughs> they changed some something about it where I couldn't do it anymore. But yeah, for a, for about a year, I was like all about holding up that Woodland Park Zoo train. I feel like you may have told that on Omnibus Four, and I had forgotten that you know Loftus and Donaldson are not the last train robbers. It's you. The thing is, no one ever actually gave me anything. Oh, they were. They, you'd think they'd be like, "Ha ha, here, have an Oreo." I don't know. Maybe they gave me a couple of dollars. I mean, it wasn't. A, a, I wasn't a pocket fig Newton covered in lint. I wasn't doing it for the money. You know, <laughs> it was for the romance of the West. So you understand Loftus and Donaldson for sure. Although these guys are actually in it for the money because they spent their entire uh, stake on uh, fancy. Mexican boots. Well, and they've got real guns, so the stakes are a lot higher. This also seems like something you might have done when you were younger, spend your last remaining penny on fancy Mexican boots. On the, uh, quite to the contrary, no, I saved every penny. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, as I was going to say, like none of your zoo train excursions ended like this. Uh, One of the, while Donaldson is covering the passenger, somebody does either make a move or Donaldson thinks they do. And he shoots, Uh-oh. and only the man's pocket watch saves the life of Jose Rodriguez. Love it. And at that point, the passengers had just had enough, and led by a- Mark uh, Wahlberg. Yeah, the Mark Wahlberg here is a Southern Pacific yardman named Roger Moon, uh, who I guess leads with a big roundhouse right. They just jump on Donaldson and you know start to wrestle the gun away. Loftus, coming back from the cab, sees what's going on, uh, and he is tackled by another Southern Pacific employee who just happens to be riding as a passenger. He's heading to LA, I think, to visit a sick daughter. W.L. Smith jumps on him. And so there's another pile on, including at this point, two sisters, Margaret and Beatrice Breton, are just wailing on. You can imagine them wailing on one of the bandits with a, what, their purse or their yeah. uh, 
what would they have? Flourishy umbrella, yeah, uh, parasol. Louisa May Alcott novel. Yeah, umbrella. There we go. We'll say it's an umbrella. Um, unfortunately, in the melee, W. L. Smith, the one who shot the return, the one who jumped on the returning Loftus, is shot. Oh. Um, so when the two, when Loftus and Donaldson are overpowered and they're six shooters taken away from them, they are lashed to the seats by the angry passengers who try to save the life of W.L. Smith, but unfortunately he is mortally wounded oh, no. and bleeds out. There is a body count to the last train robbery. The train stops at the next station, which is Deming, New Mexico. Of course, Loftus and Donaldson are promptly arrested. Both have been badly beaten at this point. Uh, They're going to get hanged. It's kind of a Flight 93 scenario. They killed a man. Yeah, they are now murderers. Um, Loftus has a broken nose. Donaldson's been so badly beaten that his jaw is like twice its normal size and not at the right angle, and he cannot even talk. Um, the the passengers of the Apache Limited did not think this romantic Western trope was fun anymore. Uh, too soon. Too soon. The deputy sheriff in Deming arrests Loftus and Donaldson and asks him, what on earth were you boys doing? Was this was just having some fun? And they were like, well, no, we were going to go to California. You know, we're, we're out of money. We were just looking for, just needed some, some startup cash on our way to our new life in California. Uh, the Jodes, by the way, never tried this. They never shot anybody on their way to Fresno. Uh, and the sheriff says, well, what were you boys going to do? You were just going to take all the cash and wallets and then just jump off in the middle of the, the sandy wastes of, of West Texas, New Mexico border with in those boots? Can confirm that the area between El Paso and Deming does not have a, a, a lot of infrastructure even now. And Loftus and Donaldson had not left any infrastructure. They didn't have horses hidden anywhere. I mean, Las Cruces is a fairly civilized place. Got is a it, university there. Is that like only post-Manhattan uh, Project, though? Or Oh, I think Las Cruces was, always was, been Las Cruces. was there. Yeah, it's kind of a... I mean, it was an oasis or a place to water your horse. So the sheriff points out there was no way they were going to actually survive their return. Like, what what was your plan to get back right. from the desert? And they, Loftus says, we hadn't thought of that. Oh, yeah. They, as you, you know, as we've mentioned, they are killers now. They plead guilty to second degree murder and both end up getting 50 to 75 year sentences. And I think they spend the rest of their lives in a New Mexico penitentiary, oh. a kind of a lesson about the the end of the west not the penitentiary i, I would choose <laughs> a new mexico penitentiary <laughs> you've seen a few let's let's just say there are better penitentiaries i i, I think new mexico would be nice there'd be like it's you know be incense and some george o'keefe painting oh sure and, sure that's right right yeah it's probably a lot on, of turquoise jewelry probably on a vortex so uh, so yeah boy end of the west is right they didn't even get they didn't even have the noble end of getting hanged no and if they if they had somehow escaped they they would have died in the desert. Maybe that's the more apropos end to the West, is if they just kind of wander into the desert and are never heard from again. Because, you know, that's kind of what happened to the legends and the genre. Yeah, but I feel like ending in a jail where there's a telephone, that that feels like end of the West. And that concludes the last train robbery and the last train robbery. Entry 702.EZ0722, certificate number 26056, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, which is maybe a new West 
a new Old West. The frontier will come back, for sure. There's always a new frontier. It'll probably just be where the radiation ends, or the the giant mushroom forest ends, or the alien uh, barbed wire ends, or whatever. Got the right dynamic for the new frontier. What is that? If you don't know, I can't explain it. You can go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Mad Omnibus Project. You can find Ken at Ken Jennings. If you search back far enough, he used to be hilarious. You've got to search even further back to find a time when I was hilarious at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com if you want to tell Ken your theories about Superman and Iron Man. You can hang out with other Futurelings on Facebook, wherever Futurelings are sold, and Reddit and so forth. They will explain to you why there's an L in Soviet. You can send us mail. Ken, do you have a mailbag over there? Send us mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. We heard from Ranger Michael. I think last time we heard from him, he was at Acadia National Park. Did you know that park rangers get... get uh Transferred? Get transferred like uh, like um, they're on military tours? Maybe that's not true. Maybe he just likes to get around. But he spent the summer in Glacier Bay. Oh, yeah. And so he sent us a, pasca- uh, a, a postcard of Alaska Railroad stock, rolling stock. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, I have a train set, an HO scale train set, uh, that is all Alaska Railroad livery. Did you say livery or livery? I always say livery. Yeah, I don't know. Is uh, do you think we're the only podcast that gets Alaska boxcars with such enthusiasm on its postcards? I don't listen to other podcasts, so I have no idea. Probably Ira Glass gets a ton of uh, a little bit Alaska boxcars postcards. If you were a park ranger, wouldn't you want to get transferred around all the national parks just to get the full experience? Yeah, I, I can imagine, or seasonally, you know, like maybe they have different. You know, some of them have more winter visitors than others, whereas others are only open in the summer. A couple of years ago, I visited a Firewatch Tower in Eastern Oregon, and there was a kid that was living up there. Those are summer assignments, summer. right? Yeah. Just because of fire season. He was really lonely. <laughs> he was happy to have visitors. And nowadays, those kids probably bring Xboxes and a generator, right? The uh, If you're a park ranger, tell us how that works. How do you get stationed where? We also heard from Kurt in... Uh, Aberdeen, South Dakota, who uh, has noticed that we have not mentioned Aberdeen, South Dakota recently and thought he could jumpstart that by sending us a postcard of storybook land. Some kind of, some kind of, I can only assume, off-model uh, children's attraction. Storybook land. Kind of like in, Enchanted Forest in Salem. In what part of South Dakota? Aberdeen. Aberdeen, South Dakota. You know, there are a lot of places in South Dakota that aren't on the, uh, the freeway. And Most of it. If you're not on the freeway in South Dakota, boy, it's tough to get people to get off the freeway. Uh, but I, I got to say, Storybook Land looks pretty nice, or at least they cleaned it up nice for this postcard. So uh, what, do you, what do you think is the correct number of times to mention Aberdeen, South Dakota? Just well, so let's we see. know. Do we, have a, um, do we have any sense of anything else that's happened in Aberdeen, South Dakota, besides the construction of Storybook Land? Well, we mentioned it in... Um, oh, oh, there's a place in, in uh, Aberdeen called Land of Oz Wizard's Balloon Ride. Well, I think that's this. There, there's, La- there's Land of Oz. Now that uh, oh. Wizard of Oz is in the public domain, there's 
Land of Oz signage on Storybook Land. So you can actually you can actually ride a balloon. Um, let me tell you though that Storybook Land is not near the freeway. You're gonna have to get up there, get out, and go up to the. It's it's gonna be closer to Fargo than it is to Rapid City. Oh, on a different note, it's not John Fiedler playing the playing Woodcock in Butch and, Ca- in Butch and Sundance. It's actually George Firth, oh, yeah. who you probably mostly remember from that part in Butch Cassidy, although he's also in Blazing Saddles, Shampoo, Cannonball Run, and Oh God as the agnostic newspaper editor, but actually more famous as a writer. He wrote uh, the libretto for or the book for two Sondheim musicals, Company and Merrily We Roll Along. Oh, no kidding. I had no idea that was Woodcock. That's really interesting. Uh, to me, probably to mm-hmm. no one else. No, to all, all fans of, like, late 70s uh, comedy dramas. And speaking of things that are not interesting to anyone else, Aberdeen, South Dakota. Now, we can now not mention it for another year or so. Did you mention the Patreon? Oh, that was the last thing. I'm not sure you did. I didn't. So please support our program at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, it enables us to manufacture this program to your delight and for your delight. And also there are lots of wonderful rewards, including this show, which was suggested to us by a Patreon donor. Yeah. Patrick uh, donated at the washing bear level for six months and got to suggest a show topic. And he sent over a few pretty great ones. I, he really has knows, understands the vibe of the show because one was native American, one was Nazis and one was trains. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he never would have expected that I would have taken the trains. No, he thought that was, that was a, a surefire John topic, but you got there the trains. Uh, I, the only trains I know about are in Western, so this was perfect for me. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, as we as we ride off into the sunset, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.